Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Garrison Draper, the Director of Performance at Philadelphia Union MLS team. Garrison is a sports scientist and strength and conditioning coach with a wealth of knowledge and experience working within the MLS, enjoying previous spells at the Chicago Fire and the Seattle Sounders. On today's show, we'll be discussing environmental stressors, including altitude, weather, the effects of travel and player wellness. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the newly released Airbands BFR cuffs. The Airbands are the world's first fully wireless and automated BFR training cuffs. They're equipped with an intelligent calibration tool and you can control them via the Airbands mobile app. The cuffs accurately inflate to your personalised pressure zone, so there's no more cords, no more manual pump and no more guesswork. Check out Vald Performance and Airbands to find out more if you'd like to incorporate a safe, affordable and smarter BFR cuff into your training programmes and rehab. But without further ado, let's get into the conversation between myself and Garrison Draper. Garrison, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on, mate. Yeah, thanks so much, Andy. Just to begin with, and and just in case any of the listeners haven't come across you just yet, would you be able to outline kind of, you know, who you are, what you have done historically, like your background, and then kind of bring us through to the current day? Sure. Um, well, my name is Garrison Draper. I currently serve as the Director of Performance for the Philadelphia Union. Um, my story is sort of wild and winding. Um, I was a soccer player in college. I love soccer. I started at Valparaiso University, and that's really what kicked off my love for um, the sport and understanding the demands of it. And so... A couple years in, I decided that I wanted to focus more on my my education than the actual sport. And to be honest, I wasn't getting much playing time either. So I made the decision to actually transfer to a school called East Stroudsburg University, which is out in Northeast Pennsylvania. And it was one of the better decisions of my career, I believe, um, because the exercise science program at East Stroudsburg was so much fun to be in. And I learned so much. And Actually, one of my favorite courses, and I didn't realize it at the time, was a course called Environmental Exercise Physiology, which will sort of come back later into my life, um, as you'll see. But I had a really great experience there. Still got to play soccer, but got to play soccer for fun, not so much for um, the competitive levels that were Division One soccer. So after graduating from East Stroudsburg, I um, moved out to Seattle where I worked with Dave Tenney and the Seattle Sounders for a year. And that was my first introduction to the real sports science world and what it's like to be an applied sports scientist. From there, I moved to the Chicago Fire, um, did a couple of consultancies abroad, and then moved to the Philadelphia Union, where I started out with our academy program. And that was a really interesting way to start. I had worked in first team football for a couple of years now, and the Philadelphia Union had sort of reached out and said, we're looking to build the elite academy in the country. We want to be leaders in thinking and um, really drive innovation throughout the academy world. And it was such a cool project to start out with. And as we sort of developed our philosophies and pushed forward, um, the, the club 
gave me the opportunity to move up and sort of oversee the entire department. So now as the performance director for the Philadelphia Union, I oversee first team staff, second team staff, the Union too, and our academy staff and our overall philosophy as it pertains to performance and athletic development. And are you kind of still doing the the nitty gritty sports science work as well? Or have you got somebody um, that reports to you from a kind of purebred sports science perspective? Yeah, it's it's a combo. I don't think I could ever give up the the day-to-day life of collecting data and analyzing it, but we do have other members of staff that work in that function in that fashion so I can have a little bit more of an oversight role, but I'm still very hands-on in the data collection part because that's that's where I feel most comfortable. Yeah, and I guess you you have to be to some degree don't you to stay connected with what's actually happening on the floor for you to be able to uh, move the chess pieces accordingly. You need to still know on a on a detailed level what's happening. Yeah, and and the other really fortunate part is I have really good practitioners around me, so I can trust them and know that they're gonna do their job well, and I can give my expertise. But then also as a manager, one of the big things you have to learn is you have to rely on the other experts in the room to use their expertise. And so I've been very fortunate that I've never had to really question the professionalism of the people that I work with. Obviously, in America, the different um, sports leagues have slightly different ratios, if you like, of uh, what different types of professionals make up their performance departments and medical teams. Um, I guess for the listeners who might be perhaps in the UK with football in the EPL, they'll know the kind of EPL's uh, academy and full-time staff instructors and what types of professionals are within that are you able to kind of tell us what other professionals are within your department and what's the kind of makeup of your team yeah so in our club we have there's 13 members of the full-time staff in the club that are performance department related and a big goal of ours is that people can share roles and processes throughout it. And so a great example would be our athletic trainers. We would love it for all of our athletic trainers to be able to walk into the gym and run a session. Um, Even if it's not something that they've been taught directly in their education processes, we want them to really own the performance side of the world because um, all of our goals is to see our athletes performing well on the pitch. And so that's something that we really push hard in our development of our staff members. So the way our club sort of works, and a lot of it's mandated by the league as well, is we have three athletic trainers that work with the first team and the second team. And that's that's mostly pushed by league mandates. But then we also have a physical therapist and a strength coach um, slash fitness coach at the first team level. But what I really like about the first team level guys is they – they do a great job of sharing the load and collaborate really well together. So if there's an athlete that needs something in particular, they actually turn to the guy with expertise. And there, there aren't those turf wars that you see a lot of times between athletic trainers and some of the performance staff, which is um, a really positive piece. Then as we sort of trickle down through the, um, through the academy levels, a lot of it is based on sort of the needs. We have different travel parties within the academy. So different age groups sort of stay together and travel together and can be in the same city at the same time. And so a lot of it's just based on logistics from there. So we have um, a couple of athletic trainers and 
strength coaches and sports scientists at the first at the academy level and a lot of times they're able to share roles except for on the medical side which is exclusively our athletic trainers yeah it sounds like a very collaborative and uh probably productive environment from a knowledge sharing perspective then yeah we hope for it to be and it's a it's a big push for all of us to sort of be watching and and learning from the other fields, but then also really digging into our own individual fields and seeing how we can help each other. And to dive into the MLS as a kind of, uh, as a league and a, and a structure of sport, beyond the normal challenges of football or soccer uh, as an activity, what are the kind of greatest challenges that you personally face um, from dealing with that league as, a, you know, from a performance and a sports medicine standpoint? Yeah, I, I think the easiest one to point out, and you can go based on, um, win and loss records is the travel in the MLS. And if we look at comparing the MLS to other leagues around the world, the success rate of away teams is way lower. I believe the the last time I saw, I think it was at the end of the 2018 season, there was a, a really great infographic about um, away teams. And it showed that the MLS had a success rate of something like 26%, meaning the away team won 26% of the games, um, which is extremely low when you start looking at the NBA and the NHL, which is moving close. It's in the 45 to 50% range. So it's, there isn't as much of a, a difficulty with travel in some of the other leagues in the United States as there is in the MLS. Um, so that's always one of the biggest things that we focus on year in and year out and how we can help get points on the road. And sort of what we found through our own analysis is um, teams that get 11 points on the road during a, during a season, so three wins and two draws, are almost guaranteed a playoff spot. I think it's interesting hearing you talk about that, actually, because we had uh, Fergus Connolly on, and I'm, I'm really glad you actually started with, uh, I guess, like a, a strategic performance standpoint, I guess, because Fergus mentioned... You know, like, does it affect the scoreboard as, like, the the number one performance question that he asks in, in any context? Um, so I'm really glad you actually started on that note because I guess you can, from a performance or medical point of view, if knowing that information, you can then work backwards to then what do you need to do for um, to make sure that you've got squad availability to actually achieve those goals. Yeah, and it's it's a really interesting conundrum because the league also... Um, is showing that we don't rotate as much as you would expect for teams that really put an emphasis on these road matches and have these strange schedules. Um, another one of the really interesting analyses that we ended up finding is that um, the teams who ended up with the most points during the season rotated the least. And our R value, so the correlation value of that was in the point eight range so it was a fairly strong correlation between end of season points and the number of different lineups the team would or the number of changes that the team would make throughout the season so it sort of is a a backwards relationship there where road points are really important and getting wins on the road is going to be a really important factor in success in the MOS but so is consistency of your your lineup. So it's not like you can very easily just rotate your squad, throw a new group of players out there and hope for the, for good results, because that's not something that's happening in the MLS right now. You mentioned uh, at the beginning of this, the difference between the MLS and say the NBA and the NHL. 
in terms of um, points on the road. But is the big, and I'm wondering, and I don't want to spoil the story for you, is your, has your interest in kind of the environment, I guess, as or, or kind of like how weather relates to performance, has that been re-sparked by that in the sense that in the NBA and the NHL, you've got a fairly standardized uh, climate in terms of where you're playing, like in terms of weather, other than perhaps altitude. Whereas obviously in the MLS, you're outdoors, so you've, you're more susceptible to changes in uh, weather and maybe conditions. Is this a fair uh, assumption? And has it kind of like brought back that interest for you? Yeah, I, I think it's always been a topic that I've been interested in. Um, again, like I said, East Stroudsburg, the environmental exercise physiology course really kicked it off for me. Um, so it's always something that I've tied back in now in my current role. Um, I think what's been fun about working with the Philadelphia union is we're, we're a club that wants to innovate and drive thinking. And we also want to do it in an economic way. It doesn't, I don't think it means we're cheap. I think it means that we have to go above and beyond and in, in guiding our decision-making process and ensuring that we have the answers that we need before making a purchase. And that's really helped me sort of hone in on a lot of our different processes. So an example was we knew that we needed 11, at least 11 points on the road um, to give ourselves a good, good shot at making the playoffs, which is, is always a goal of a team that's, um, in the MLS because you want to make it to the MLS cup, obviously. So from there, sort of like what Fergus Connolly was talking about in his podcast, um, we now know what we need to do and now how do we do it? So we can start looking at what are the different advantages. And so what we did was we built a, a game difficulty scale. And what we did was we took every single game that we played and evaluated it based on environmental context. So heat, um, geographical context, such as distance from your home travel, um, altitude. We had humidity built in. We had our schedule. So if we were playing three games in a week, that would make the game more difficult. Or if we had 10 days off, that would make the game less difficult. But then also our, our opponent's difficulty um, was taken t- into account as well. So if they had a stretch of matches in short time, that would make the game less difficult for us. So we tried to build this scale and evaluate, hey, how, how hard is this match going to be? And it turned out that the match difficulty score didn't correlate very well with our actual results of the matches. Um, and I'm actually not upset with that because what we found was these really difficult games, we actually started investing a little bit more um, resources into. So we would say, all right, we're going to Houston in July. It's going to be really hot. It's going to be miserable. It's probably not going to be an ideal environment for performance. What can we do to help our athletes? So then we started to think a little bit harder. So instead of this being a a result predictor, it actually sort of gave us insight into how we can help our athletes succeed in these difficult environments. And then we could start using our exercise physiology brains or our logistical brains to say, all right, we know this match is hard because of heat and we know it's hard because we played a game on Sunday. Now we're playing on Wednesday. So what are the things that we need to do from a performance standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, from a travel standpoint to help our athletes succeed? 
it's uh, it's interesting to hear how kind of pragmatic your uh, approach is because you when you just collect physical data you make assumptions that uh, like as an example the gps numbers are a, a fair reflection of the player physically but it doesn't account for the technical tactical variation of a game like what style are you playing what style is the opponent playing how many games they're running off i think it's interesting to hear how you've incorporated the technical and tactical into the same data collection that will um, ultimately change your understanding of the players physically as well yeah and, and that's actually where um, i think the Germans are doing a really great job. They're taking a, a lot more of that information and making decisions um, using optical tracking and companies like Chiron Hago, Second Spectrum are doing a really nice job of making it a little bit easier. Um, and my one caveat is I'm, I'm not a computer programmer and I'm not a data scientist by training. I've, I'm self-taught in those ways. So all these processes are still sort of new and it's, it's great because I can look at it from more of a, a performance mindset and then see how we can apply these different ideas. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really helpful. And I, I can tell you that inside of our database, we, we have metadata. So sort of like the underlying contextual variables that um, talk about formations, talk about weather, talk about all these different variables that you might not think are going to be valuable. And what we've tried to do is capture as much as we can so then we can run back and do an analysis if we think is important. Actually, I got a great question from a local soccer coach, and he said, how much does a red card change physical performance during a match? And I said, I actually don't know, but I know we collect it. Um, so that's something that we're sort of messing around with right now. And I actually started going through the research, and I didn't see much information out there at the moment on that topic. And I need to keep going through Scopus a little bit further to make sure that I'm not missing something. But um, that's a really interesting coach-driven question that needs to be answered. Yeah, it's interesting because you need to be able to uh, react and adapt on the fly, especially in a game where a red card uh, <laughs> crops up. So you can't really train for the red card, but I guess um, some awareness of what happens when it does happen, I guess, allows you to then understand, you know, what's the impact of that game? What's the session cost? difference if the red card does happen how do you how do you change the recovery or the the, the training schedules post game if that has that has come into action yeah and i i think the assumption as i sort of clicked through our data over the last day or two after this question popped up for me it looks like a lot of the variables stay the team at the team level so the total distance covered is really similar when you have 11 players on the field or 10 and sprinting distances stay sort of the same. But what that means is other players are picking up that load. And so there's a, there's a drastically different physical load for an individual. And so there's all these different levels that you need to break it down by to see where it's going to affect them and then make decisions from there, which is the pragmatic approach again. Where do you find, in, as soccer as a sport, and maybe in the MLS, where are your biggest um, blind spots? What, what are the kind of the regions of data or performance that you think are less understood at the moment? I mean, that's a tough one. I think right now, with optical tracking sort of just coming in at a very high level in the last couple of seasons, I know we were really lucky to have a partnership with Kansas City where we were able to share 
um, Chiron Hago over the last season and share our data. That was sort of a new innovative process. And now the league has brought in second spectrum as a um, optical tracking tool. So I, I think connecting the physical and the, the technical tactical sides is going to be the next big step. And also beginning to objectify your scouting processes. Now that more and more leagues are having similar data sets, you're going to be able to analyze athletes that you're, you're interested in at a much higher level and make decisions more based on the holistic athlete, which I think is really exciting. Now that's very cool. It sounds like you've got a good blend of um, uh, sort of philosophy and science combined. Yeah. And that's the great part about it is there's a little bit of art and there's a little bit of dreaming in there. And then there's, sort of the science to back it up and guide the decision-making process from there. And, you know, I'm aware you've done, you're doing even some, uh, some uh, postgraduate work. You're doing a PhD at Teesside University in the UK um, as a PhD. What are you kind of looking at within your PhD? What sort of topics uh, make up your research and your projects? Yeah. Bringing, bringing the opening story back um, full circle. A lot of my work is going to be centered around the environmental side and looking at how do how do professional soccer players respond to different environmental contexts so we actually have a paper um under review right now which sort of is our it's like our pilot study i guess it's looking at how we can utilize different data types this one being wellness to guide understanding of our our training so one of the big goals of the entire project was we don't want to create more data we want to leverage data in different ways and so what we did with this one was we took wellness scores every day our athletes fill out a wellness survey how did they sleep last night what was their nutrition like what's their mood like how's their soreness and we said all right let's take this wellness data and now let's let's flip it So instead of using it as a predictive tool of training load, we now want to use it as a response variable. So the the training session happens on Tuesday afternoon. They do that. The next morning, they fill out their wellness survey again. And now that's the response. So now it's a dependent variable for us in saying, how do they respond to that session? What do they feel like after it? Guiding our decision-making a little bit more and saying, all right, when we do this type of session, this is how the athletes respond. Um, so it was a really interesting study just looking at what variables were important, how many wellness variables were important, and then is this a valid way of utilizing wellness in um, in training? And so that, that paper is under review now. The next step is going to be utilizing things like wellness, perceived exertion, to evaluate athlete response to different contextual variables, such as altitude, which we have a really great case study of going into altitude for a few extra days and watching the athlete's response the more time we spend in altitude compared to sort of baseline would be our sea level training, which in Philadelphia is fairly easy to collect. Um, We have other great ones where we're going to look at um, how heat affects some of these responses to training loads. and. So we're just going to dig into a lot of the environmental context that we deal with at the the MLS level on a daily and yearly basis, travel, flying over time zones, and hope to give practitioners an idea of how much of an effect each of these different scenarios has on their athletes. 
I don't know whether you can say this yet or not, but from from the wellness stuff that you're looking at, is there key things that you think matter more than others or what are the kind of most critical things that a, a practitioner can uh, collect or focus on? Yeah, so our data aligned a lot with Robin Thorpe's data and he's had a lot of that published where we had seven questions in our initial survey and we ran a, a principal component analysis, PCA, and what that did was it looked at all the data and it, it tries to put stuff into um, components, different groups. And it says this component all says sort of the same thing or has really similar responses. This group has similar responses. And what we found was from our seven questions, we had three components. So there are really three things that were being answered. Um, so we had sort of like, a, I guess you'd say like a psychological response there was a physical response and then there was sort of we call it a lifestyle but it was like your nutrition and hydration so like there was a lifestyle response how did i treat my body or how did i act um outside of the facility last night and so those are the three components that we ended up with wellness status i guess is my first exposure like many will be from the lower tech days when it's just simple questions how well does um or how usable is that now in professional sport in comparison to the wrath of tech that we've got? Obviously, I'm guessing you need both and it's not one or the other, but um, what do you find creates like the most meaningful combination when you've got high-tech tools at your disposal, but you've also got the simple um, wellness options as well? Yeah, I, I don't think anything will ever be having the conversation with the athlete. Um, so that's, that's always going to be my number one piece from there, I I think it's going to need to be a combination. I love the work by Dan Weaving, and he's out of the UK. And what they're trying to do is combine the use of subjective and objective data and guide decision making from there. And it was, I think, it's really really neat to watch his work on, unfold and sort of how they're creating this this paradigm or this matrix of based on the combination of subjective and objective data, this is the type of response the athlete is having. And this is what it's telling us about the athlete um, based on the combination of that data. And they're utilizing, again, the, the PCA pops up again as the way that they're sort of pulling all this information together. And I think it's really novel and fun to watch. Um, so it's got to be a combination, but that that person-to-person interaction, I think, is really important. So one thing that I really strive to do is, yes, we collect our wellness surveys as a digital mean, but a lot of times there's a, a personal component to it. So they're able to answer the question, one to 10, how do I, how sore am I today? But then there's always a comment section. And that comment section sometimes is the most telling piece where maybe the athlete had a bad night of sleep. They can now say, and they know that it'll stay fairly private because we've built a good trust between the athletes and um, and our practitioners. What happened? Uh, I had a fight with my girlfriend last night, or um, I was up late. I had a test for another for a class that I'm taking, and I was studying really hard, and I just lost track of time. All those things are really important for us to make a decision. Um, and share back to our coaching staff so that contextual variable is always helpful. But then there's always always the face-to-face interaction. Wellness survey comes back bad. I'm walking straight into the locker room. A staff member is walking st- straight into the locker room and saying, what's going on, dude? Like, how can we help you? 
I mean, it's good. It removes some of the barriers as well, doesn't it? Because you can ask an athlete, how do you feel? How was yesterday? And they can give you, if they, if they want to, they can give you quite a vague answer to that. And they can say, yeah, I feel fine. But actually when you've got a change in their sort of values in front of you, you can say, how do you feel? And they can say, good. And it, and then you can say, okay, well, you know, I just saw that on this score, you're a little bit down today, you know, um, what do you think's going on? And you can, it gives you a, 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 an easy and a nice way to probe them on why something may have changed in that conversation, I think as well. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where I think wellness data needs to evolve a little bit. I think people, are, practitioners are now understanding, yes, there's, there's some variability, but how much is normal and how much of it is individualized. And I have, I have an athlete now, he came up to me, we, we actually traded for him in the middle of last season and um, he came up to me and said, look, I'm happy to do a wellness survey. I think it's great. I'll do everything I can. Just so you know, from the beginning, a five is normal for me. So don't worry if you see fives everywhere because that's completely normal. Anything that changes from there is is where you should be alarmed or happy for me. So it was like, yes, perfect. That's, that's really helpful because the first thing I like all of our athletes – they show up as sevens and eights. And I think it's just the way that it was explained to them when we first started tracking wellness was sevens and eights are normal. So that would have been a red flag right from the beginning. So now how do we sort of normalize this data for athletes and the individual? And that's, that's the big question that I think we can dig into with research and I think find out a lot more um, based on these variations. I think it illustrates the need or the, uh, the value of Dan Weaving's work as well, having some objective data in there as well. Cause I mean, I remember when I worked in professional rugby without saying names, there was one player that just jumps out to mind who um, was in a leadership playing role on the team. And he would come in and he'd be the first player in, in the morning and he'd jump on the scales. We do his wellness questions and he would say that his muscle soreness was great. Appetite was great. Motivation was great. Sleep was great. Every day was great. Every, every score was perfect. And you know, the chances of that actually being true all the time is, is very slim. So it was, you need sometimes, I think, that objective data because players can have that, uh, their mentality and their attitude can affect the uh, the bias or the accuracy of the scores they give you for their wellness. Yeah, and, and there's there's also a piece of, I love this saying, and I believe, I don't want to mis, misquote it or miss, um, I guess, miscite it, but psychology trumps physiology and i think it came from mike boyle is where i heard it first and sometimes it's true like we see this information the the athlete's been through just hell he's played eight games in the last few weeks he's covered 12k 13k in every single one of these matches and he's still coming back saying i feel great i feel great but everything that we have objectively is saying this guy's got to be dead. He's got to be running on an empty tank. Like, how do we manage it? So that's where I think it's really important that we we utilize our our personal brains as well and also just use common sense with a lot of this information and say, all right, this athlete's feeling great, which is awesome. We don't need to be worried about him, but still, how do we manage him and make a good decision for the athlete and for him um, mechanically and physiologically? Does the kind of notion of um, psychology dictates physiology, does that come into play a little bit with recovery in the sense of finding out whether players prefer heat or cold in terms of maybe selecting recovery strategies for them post-training or post-game? 
Yeah, I think that's one of the big decision makers for me. And I would love to get our wellness data up to the point where um, as players sort of come through and answer these questions, instead of it just being a data collection process, I would love for it to be a feedback process where um, it can say, all right, you've said these five things are, um, are negative. Well, we would recommend you do this or this because you answered these questions. And there's some... I know a couple of the, the products out there are starting to do decision trees like that. And I think it's a really valuable tool where we can start guiding athletes um, real time based on their, their answers to different questions. And the same thing could be, could be even said for some of their um, RPE data. So we utilize something called differential RPE, which means, which means it, it goes a little bit further in depth. So it's not just how hard was a session, but now it's how hard was a session on my legs? How hard was a session on my breathing? How hard was a session on my brain? And from those three questions, we can now um, make some different assumptions about the type of loading and also make some different assumptions about the type of recovery process that would be most helpful for the athlete. That real-time loop would be really helpful. So that's, that's a point that I really want to get to in the coming weeks, months, years to really help our athletes. You'll have to excuse my naivety, but I'm not sure whether the there's literature on this already, but has anyone looked at, or do you consider this? Do you, Would you ever consider uh, a player's um, preference for playing in the heat or the cold in terms of how that affects their recovery or their performance? Is that like a variable that teams consider or try and understand in the players? It's an interesting question. Um, and I guess the anecdote I'll use is, from a physiologic standpoint, and when we look at the literature on heat and cold acclimatization, it's a real process. You can build, I guess, a comfort level and a physiologic preference for heat and cold training. But when you actually talk to performers that are in it, um, and I'll use Dave McKay, who's our head of strength and conditioning and fitness at the club. Um, he was formerly with Orlando City. And Orlando during the summer is miserably hot, and humid, and it's it's very difficult to conduct good training sessions during the hot periods of the day. And he says, you don't get used to it. You have to just adapt. And so that's a really interesting duality between um, what the physiology and the literature says and the actual practice. And so I, I think it's a really important one where there needs to be sort of an honest conversation. and. Those conversations I've had to have even this year, we brought in a player um, from Norway and he was really excited about the summer months. And so he came in during preseason. We do our preseason in Clearwater and we got to our first decently hot day. It was 75 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's nothing compared to the summer. And he was like, oof, this is, this is really difficult. And so I had to have the conversation of like, that 75 degree Fahrenheit that you think is a difficult condition to play in, it's going to get worse. And these are things that you have to be prepared for. So I think the mental sort of process of preparing them for it is really important. Offering them some, some different ways that they can alleviate the difficulties or the stresses from a physiologic standpoint are really important. And then there's also just the experience of dealing with it that we have to go through. And there's sort of that, that decision-making process in the coach's mind where he has to say, all right, this player's never played in, in temperatures over 
80 degrees. Will this be a good time for him to, to start doing that? We have a really important game today. The same discussion can be had about travel. We actually have some really interesting data on just wellness and traveling on an airplane for four to six hours, which in Europe, if we're bringing a player in for from a European team, is unheard of, except for in Champions League. And so like we watch our players' wellness getting off of an airplane and you see like the players that haven't done it and haven't experienced it, their wellness scores drop drastically that first day off of an airplane. Um, So navigating that process instead of getting them used to it, it takes a couple of months. And what you see a lot of times in the MLS is some of the foreign players that you bring in that haven't had to deal with the, the external variables that come with the MLS, they struggle for a little bit. There's a couple of guys that, walk in and are super successful, but there's there's a large chunk of players that come into the league and are phenomenal soccer players, but you don't get to see it right away because there's so many difficult environmental factors that they have to overcome before they can really feel comfortable. It's an interesting consideration you've got in the MLS because if, you know, by comparison in the EPL, um, whether a player plays up north in Newcastle as an example, or whether they play in one of the London clubs, the weather fluctuations minimal, whether it's, I mean, it might rain or not rain, but the temperature change isn't that drastic. Altitude is the same pretty much. And it's not necessarily a variable that uh, coaches or sports scientists have to really factor in, I guess, with uh, player exposure or uh, squad selection. Whereas obviously in America as a continent and just a huge country playing in Florida is dramatically different to New York is dramatically different to um, like a Colorado team. It's, It's a, there's a lot more variables that I guess you personally have to really think about uh, beyond just the sport itself. There are. And I think we have our own interesting challenges, just like the EPL has a lot of interesting challenges. I know that the stress of relegation and promotion is, is something that us in the United States don't have to deal with, but that should be a factor that's taken into account for all of your athletes. That's, that's more stress. Robert Sapolsky's, um, why zebras don't get ulcers is the perfect example of like whether it's on the field or in the head, stress is stress and we need to be able to manage it accordingly. So each one sort of has its own separate response and how we can respond to it. But uh, I'm not envious of the the European my European counterparts that have to deal with that mental stress because I can't imagine the the tolls it takes on yourselves and your athletes. Yeah, and I guess it circles back to the value of um, qualitative uh, wellness assessments and conversations with players because you're more likely to capture their internal loads of stress in those situations um, if you're using, um, like we said, like the different wellness questionnaires and um, conversation prompts that it provides you with. Yeah, and and we can't rule out some of the the more objective measures of internal load too. Um, we have some really interesting data just watching heart rate in, in response to um, specific training loads, but then even digging a little bit further into some of the more blood-related and endocrine-related um, responses. And there's going to be some really interesting work, I'm sure, in the coming years sort of combining all of that. So I, I think it's important that we we look to find good answers, but then also make sure that we aren't being too invasive. All right this COVID-19 period is going to be a really interesting one for that because there's going to be a lot of 
poking and prodding? And at what level do we just need to say, like, this is enough and this is enough information for us? And how much stress are we putting on athletes just from our monitoring processes? And I, I actually really, when I first listened to it, I, I disagreed with some of the comments that Darren Burgess made during, um, I believe it was during Steve Barrett's um, conference that he held early in, or late in March because he was sort of saying like, we need to take a more hands-off approach. And I was, I struggled with it for a little bit, but thinking back about it a little bit more, I'm saying, I sort of agree with this, this idea of like how, how much data is enough data and can we still utilize some of our information to, to pull more out of it. And it goes back to my PhD work, which is, yes, I think we can, and I don't think we need to be adding more variables to that until we're really able to um, say that we've fully exercised all the value out of this data point. Yeah, I guess like if, it, if the question gives you the answer, you don't need to add anything else to it. But if it's not, then you have to um, question, do you need to add something else in or is there a different way to, to answer the same question that you've got? Yeah, and, and how many times do you need to, to poke someone with a needle? to get the answer that you need. And is that worth the result that you're going to get? It's quite easy, I think, to, if you've got the budget, to to buy things and add stuff theoretically. But in reality, you can't always add things in. I think once you've got answers, I think it's interesting to see if you can actually scale back how often you test it. So, you know, if you test one thing every day, is that better than if you test it once a week can you get the same information out of doing less and have like a more minimal um uh, what's the you know minimal intervention i guess or minimal uh testing of the athletes they've got less test fatigue can you still get the same information that you need uh with less i think is maybe something we should sometimes strive for for sure i I think it's such an important consideration um so i'm i'm really grateful to to one of the i guess godfathers of sports science darren burgess for bringing that to to more people's attention. Cause I, I think it's something that we need to do and, and continually think, how do we, how do we get back to treating our athletes like people, not guinea pigs? What else? Is there anything else in the pipeline for you within your PhD? Is there any other kind of topics that you plan to tackle and research? Um, so right now the, the big process has been sort of a systematic review on how are athletes responding to these different environmental contexts Big difficulty right now is getting the PICO question right. So figuring out what the population is, what the interventions are, pieces that are really important to asking the right question. And my mind goes in a million different ways because there's a lot of questions that I want to answer. And there's a lot of really great research out there that can help us answer that. Um, Because I can go from how do athletes respond to travel and heat and altitude and all these different factors but that might be too broad. We might have 10,000 articles to review. But then if we start saying, how do they respond to it in competition? Now we're starting to get a little bit more um, direct in our questioning. So that's going to be a big project for me over the coming years is just the coming year is deciding how do we guide the systematic review and how do we guide our practice and our questioning in the future with that information. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the challenge of research, isn't it? You can't be all things to everyone, but equally you don't, you probably don't want to 
have to write 20 papers to answer one overarching question that you have either. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's where it's been fun to be an applied practitioner in the research world. Even though my time has been fairly much smaller than a lot of other great researchers out there, but I'm, I'm able to more strategically answer my questions. And that's one of the, the difficult parts of getting published with a lot of the supplied research is this was a fairly specific question about my context. And there's potential that nobody else in the world cares about this context except for me. But it was, I still wanted to put in the work to create this paper and hopefully someone else finds value with it. But then um, you deal with sort of trying to get yourself into a journal and do other people view it as valuable. So there's there's a lot of fun pieces, but again, it comes back to you're trying to answer your questions and guide your decision-making. So publishing may not be the end-all be-all for this process. It might be um, guiding decision-making within your own organization. Mm. You know, cases and contexts will vary, but there's, there's no doubt going to be um, key points or take-homes that people from different environments and, and probably different sports uh, will be able to take out of it, you know, have every confidence in that i think that's that's the beauty of reading widely isn't it you're able to uh, be inspired by uh, ideas or approaches that people have used in other in other environments yeah for sure and it, one of my favorite um pieces is actually my my uncle is a horse trainer down in in florida and a lot of times he'll shoot me a message like hey this is what we're doing with our horses right now um getting ready for a couple of races and a couple of years later you see uh you see a paper coming out that looks really similar to that. So it's fun sometimes even to jump outside of your um, your little realm of elite athletes and dig into the medical research or even some of the, the I guess, the, the zoological and, and animal-based athletes, which is driving a lot of research as well. Yeah, like I know like a random example, but there's definitely a lot of literature on UTC ultrasonography imaging for horse tendons as well as for humans. I think I wouldn't I'm not sure about this, but it maybe was developed first in a veterinary sense before it was a, a human tool. So um, you know, I think it, it only broadens the scope of what we can consider um to, to do with athletes or people. For sure. Um where's the best place for people to follow you and kind of track your activity and see what you're up to? Um, I'm really bad at social media, so I, I'm going to apologize now. Um, Twitter is my favorite place to at least check daily because I love all the information that people are posting. So my Twitter handle is at Garrison Draper. Um, but then always feel free to email me. My email is gdraper, D-R-A-P-E-R, at philadelphiaunion.com. And um, I love receiving emails and more questions and sort of starting dialogue with new people because there's there's so much you can learn from everyone yeah no i appreciate that and thank you for coming on today and uh great to talk shop with you and really appreciate the sort of honesty and transparency you gave about um your club and and your league as well absolutely thanks so much andy for having me pleasure thank you I'd like to thank Garrison for coming on today's show. At this time of release, the Philadelphia Union are just two days out of the MLS semi-finals in their Orlando bubble. So I wish him and the boys the best of luck through the end of their tournament. If you're a regular listener tuning into the show, then please support the show by subscribing or by sharing episodes with your peers, especially if we discuss something that's worthy of your recommendation. 
Follow and find us on Instagram at InformPerformance or on Twitter at InformPod. Alternatively, if you'd like to make reference to our show notes, then jump on our website, InformPerformance.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode with myself and Garrison Draper, and we'll see you next week for some more performance and sports medicine insights.